Well, the span of our study this morning is going to take us from Exodus uh, up to 1 Samuel, so up to life in the land of Canaan. And, uh, and I don't really have anywhere specific to tell you to turn, except I suppose you could flip fast and follow along as we, as we make that kind of progress. Uh, you could start in Exodus 1. It's good to have our Bibles open just as routine. We're going to be speaking a little bit about uh, some things going on there in Exodus 1 and 2 as we get started, so that's a, a good place to begin. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be going at a good clip, which you can all be thankful for since we'll all be hungry for lunch. Um, well, we'll set the context for our study in this way. Uh, th- this month was my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, and in a style true to who they are, they decided to celebrate that fact by taking a 2,500-mile road trip together. And uh, in talking with them about the trip, there were two factors that made the trip exciting. One, one factor was the specific scenery that they were going to encounter along the way. Uh, their trip was going to end up taking them through 10 different mountain passes, so the scenery was going to be amazing as they traveled. And the other factor that made the trip exciting, at least for my dad, and, and I'll admit for me too as we were talking about this, the other factor that made the trip exciting was the necessary time spent with the map planning the route we were going to, that they were going to take. Um, because that time spent with the map planning the journey what was, was an equally stimulating part uh, as to actually taking the journey itself. And, and we understand uh, for, for somebody who enjoys uh, being out on the road like my parents do, um, and I suppose that got passed on to me, but, but, but that time out there on the road is, is punctuated uh, by all the beauty of the scenery you encounter as you plan a trip that will take you through the scenery. So, of course, if you go out and you decide we're going to take a trip and just, uh, just end up where we end up without really thinking through things, you can miss the significance of the, of the scenery along the way. You can miss that side road you could have taken and these kinds of things. Um, but in, in talking through the trip plan with my dad and then in, in hearing about the trip when they got back, those two elements came together in a very helpful way, not just the drive itself, but the planning that took place in order that they had a necessary route uh, to see all the things they wanted to see. And, and I know it sounds weird, but talking with them about that made me think of the sermon uh, work that we're doing, uh, because that's, I guess, where my thinking tends to, to land on a weekly basis is, is this upcoming Sunday sermon. Um, but in thinking about their road trip and then in thinking about the ground we've been covering in our sermons, uh, especially for these three weeks, uh, it's helpful to think about uh, the context of 1 Samuel as the scenery that we're about to come in and study. We're going to be paying specific attention to the truth that's there in 1 Samuel. But in order to really get there, in order to, to make sense of that truth when we get there, we need to have arrived by a proper path. We need to make sure we've taken the right road so that we can see the scenery that's meant to be seen. And so uh, just like setting out on a road trip for the sake of scenery without understanding how the highways would connect and, and we'd leave missing important points along the way, so too in our Bible study, without a good reminder of how the landscape of biblical history comes together, we can miss the significance of the truth that we're viewing, especially as we come to specific sections. Uh, so again, I offer that as a kind of rationale for our approach over these three weeks. Uh, we're going to begin 1 Samuel chapter 1 next week. Um, But before we do that, we are finishing up uh, these three weeks as we uh, review at a a map level the landscape of the Bible and the history of God's dealings with His people coming up and into the context of 1 Samuel. And so uh, with this approach in mind, you know a couple weeks ago we began with Genesis 1 and we paid attention to God's activity there in creation uh, up to His dealings with Abraham and the call of Abraham there in Genesis 12. 
And then last week, we paid attention to the special promise that God made to Abraham, that, that God would bless him with, with offspring in that land of Canaan, and his offspring uh, would ultimately be a blessing to the nations. It was a promise that pointed forward to Jesus Christ, ultimately. Uh, but in the meantime, we saw how God preserved Abraham's family line, both through their own folly and through a time of famine. And, uh, and so last time, we saw God's preservation and purpose that ultimately brought the offspring of Abraham uh, from that land of Canaan, where, where Abraham was living as a sojourner during that time, his offspring ultimately came into the land of Egypt. And, and you remember how things uh, went as we worked through the rest of Genesis there, uh, where Abraham's son Isaac had a son Jacob, whom God renamed Israel. So now Jacob, or Israel, he has 12 sons, and one of those sons is Joseph. And in the events of Joseph's life, uh, we have God working to prepare a way uh, not just for, uh, for Egypt and the surrounding peoples to be saved during a famine, but actually for even Abraham's own family line and, and people uh, much further out to be saved during that, that famine that came upon Egypt and the surrounding land. And this, of course, is an extremely critical point uh, to remind ourselves of, simply because all through the narrative, we have one main and pressing concern. As we, as we think about the fact that Joseph was used in this mighty way to preserve the life of so many, even though God moved in such mysterious ways to get him to that point, uh, as we think about the significance of Joseph, that we are reminded of that main and pressing concern that we've had throughout the narrative since back in Genesis 3, when the man and the woman sinned in the garden and death entered the experience of humanity as God's judgment. Uh, but since Genesis 3, we've been waiting for that very specific promise to be fulfilled in which God had said that through, the, through, through a son from the woman, through the offspring of a woman, one day the serpent's head would be crushed. So this son of Eve would be born and ultimately the evil one would be crushed and the curse of death because of sin would be reversed. And that hope has been a consistent hope all through the biblical narrative. So we've, we've, we've dealt with that tension along the way. We've seen uh, Seth uh, onto Noah and then Shem and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This promise has been, has been maintained, it's been renewed, it's even been expanded as the Lord speaks to Abraham. But this hope remains centered on an offspring. It's centered on a son. And as we pick up the story from where we left off last time in the end of Genesis, as we pick up now in Exodus, we, we have to wonder, is Joseph the one? Is Joseph the son through whom the world is going to be blessed? After all, God uh, clearly used him in a big way already in the land of Egypt. Clearly there's a sense. In fact, Joseph himself speaks about this. There's a sense in which God specifically sent Joseph to save the lives of many. That's how, that's how Joseph speaks about God's dealings with him. I've been sent here in order that many lives can be preserved. And so we get to the end of Genesis, and what are we left to think as we have felt that narrative tension all along the way? Maybe Joseph is going to be the one. After all, look at the extraordinary way he's not only grown in his faithfulness to God, so many others have failed as they got older and as time went on. No, Joseph seems to grow in faithfulness to God. And not just that, but he has been used by God to significantly preserve the life of so many people. And so, and so we have that tension built up. We're in this narrative place of tension as we pick things up today, now following the storyline from Egypt back into the promised land, which is, which is what we'll do in our studies. Um, so to help us travel this narrative geography, we're just going to have a few different words along the way that will help us frame our study, kind of like milepost markers, if you like. And, and the first word, it's not a very pleasant way to start, but the, but the first word is going to be agony. 
agony as we pick things up in Exodus. Now, uh, we remember we, we have one main question at this point in the story, and that question is, is Joseph going to be the one? We were left with that tension. Um, I, I remember my fifth grade teacher, uh, Mrs. Liebold, she, she read the best books to us in fifth grade, and she would always finish the day with the read-aloud, and she'd read books like, like Hatchet and the K, where all, there was always these, these scenes where things were left hanging. And she would do that on purpose. She might not even finish a chapter if it was a really good spot to leave us hanging. And I can just remember the classroom sitting there and all of us groaning as she left us in this spot we were going to have to wait for tomorrow at the end of the day to, to finish that section. Uh, but there's a sense in which that anticipation is built for us here. We end Genesis, and we're left what, wondering what's going to happen. It's all been building now. What's going to happen? Joseph seems like, like, like this extraordinarily used man from God for the preservation of life. Is Joseph the promised one? And the book of Exodus opens with a very emphatic answer to that question, and the answer to that question is no. Joseph isn't the one. The first chapter of Exodus opens with the names of Israel's sons who, who came into Egypt during the famine. They're all in Egypt, and then we get to Exodus 1, verse 6, and we read this exact phrase, then Joseph died. Then Joseph died. And not just Joseph, but, but then we're also told that, that his other brothers and that generation that came into Egypt during the famine, they also died. But Joseph is the only one that's named there. Joseph died. So, so just like has been the case all through the story so far, when we think that the, the death defeater might have finally come, uh, j- just like all the rest, we discover he dies. Like Seth died, Noah died. They all died, and here too, Joseph dies as well as his brothers. But even in um, yet another generational round of death, we see that God still proves to be the promise-keeping God. Because after the deaths are reported in Exodus 1 verse 6, we read this in Exodus 1 verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So so here we have God continuing to keep at least what seems to be part of His promise to Abraham. Abraham's children would be as many as the stars in the sky. We remember that promise. And here's a generation where uh, one group has died, but Abraham's people continue to multiply. And then while the increase of the people and the growth and strength that is, that is represented in that is a blessing, no doubt, we then read in Exodus that a new Pharaoh comes into power, and by that time, the memory of Joseph and his, and his famine rescue work in the land of Egypt, by that time, the memory of Joseph was gone. So this new Pharaoh comes to power, and what does he do? But he becomes very worried. He says, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. And, and because the new Pharaoh is afraid that the Israelites would ultimately overtake the Egyptian people, the Pharaoh forces uh, the Israelites into slave labor. The problem is, while pressed down in that bondage, they continue to multiply. The numbers of the Israelites only go up in that situation. And so Pharaoh not only forces them into slave labor, but he makes that horrific decree that you remember where he says, every son that is born to the Hebrews shall be cast into the Nile. 
So, so it was a mass murder plot against the people of, of, of Israel, which, it, which at first it strikes us obviously as, as inhumanely horrific that Pharaoh would do this thing. Just at a base human level, this is inhumane, this is horrific and wicked that Pharaoh would do this thing. But because we've got the tension building with the story lying all the way, this is also disastrous in terms of the people of Israel's hope because what was the promise? What was the promise? A son will come, and through the son, the evil one's going to be crushed. And what is Pharaoh doing? Well, he's killing the promise. He's killing the sons. Whether Pharaoh knows the promise that's been made to Eve and then to Abraham or not, he probably doesn't. But as the reader, we know it doesn't get any worse than this. It's not just the inhumane wickedness of Pharaoh. But there's a, there's a demonic agenda behind this, not unlike Herod killing all the young boys when Jesus was born. It is that desperate assault of darkness against God's promises of life. So, so there are the Israelites. They're tormented in slavery, and now they're suffering the murder of their sons. It's agony for the people of God's promise. So the narrative at this point, it just seems all the more desperate, doesn't it? We, we have a glimmer of hope with that account of Moses' rescue as a baby. You know, he's, he's born during that murder campaign. And this character, Moses, he makes it out. In fact, he gets a great education. There's a, there's a glimmer of hope there. But, but time goes by, and that hope doesn't really seem to last long because even when Moses grew up and tried to help his fellow Hebrews under oppression, he only got himself in more trouble, and he has to flee to the land of Midian. So Moses, he was looking pretty good there for about a, a chapter or so, but then he's got to leave. He's, he's got to go. So, so, so Moses, who was rescued from, the, from that murder campaign, now he's an adult, but, but he seems to be out of the picture. And by the end of Exodus 2, we're told the people of Israel are groaning. And, and we have to think to ourselves, how in the world did we get here? Because again, if we're just reading through and taking all this revelation in, maybe for the first time, how amazing would it be just to read this story for the very first time and take in all this truth as it's being revealed. But as we take this in, we have to be thinking to ourselves at this point, how in the world did we get here? It's God showed Himself to be the keeper of promised purposes in the past, but, but now there's this darkness, and, and how can it be allowed to be so prolific in the lives of the Israelites? The murder plot, the slavery, have, have God's purposes come to an end? We have to wonder, is this hope promised to Abraham? Is this hope and promise, all of these things, going to ultimately be over? We wonder how the darkness can be so heavy on the people whom God has committed Himself to prosper. But, but even as we ask that question, it's good to remind ourselves that this slavery and oppression, it actually uh, shouldn't be that surprising to us that this is going on. Remember that covenant ceremony from Genesis 15 that we talked about last week, where God caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. You remember that? And, and God uh, takes part in that covenant ceremony alone. He walks uh, between the halved animals. He proves himself to be the one who's ultimately going to be the keeper of the promise. It's not like Abraham and God enter into this 50-50 relationship. God walks through the middle, committing himself to keep the promise. But during that time, we're told that Abraham was in a deep sleep. And we're also told that a, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon Abraham. And in the context of, of promise and darkness, God didn't just confirm His covenant with Abraham, but during that sleep, He also revealed to Abraham that His offspring would be in a land not their own and would be afflicted as servants in that land for 400 years. It was a statement pointing forward to what took place in the Egyptian bondage. 
And, and so even in the, in the reading of the beginning of Exodus, when we can find ourselves thinking, where can God possibly be in all of this? Where's God in all this darkness when evil is so obviously active all around? When we can wonder where is God, as we have the broader narrative fresh in our minds, we can remember God is exactly where He's always been. He's in this position of continuing to keep His Word. Even in the darkness of circumstances such as these, the Lord is bringing things about exactly as He said they would be. Which brings us back to, to Joseph's own experience. Remember, Joseph's brothers intended their actions for evil, but God intended them for good. Here, Israel and Egypt is in darkness, but is darkness ever the final word in God's program? Well, we know it's not the final word. It never is. God proved that all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, where that, that chaos of darkness is dispelled by the light of God's good and life-giving purposes, which we, can, we, we can't hear with, without ultimately being catapulted forward to what ultimately He's going to accomplish on the cross. You see, when we read our Old Testament, we're not just getting the narrative along the way, but we're being prepared to recognize God's climactic work in the person and work of Jesus Christ when He comes. That's a huge purpose behind these Old Testament narratives is so that when Jesus appears on the scene and does what He's come to do, we're not surprised by it, but we're actually uh, ready to recognize it because of the truth of how God has revealed Himself. And what do we know on the cross but, but through the actions of wicked men in the midst of what seems to be so extremely dark, killing the one who came to heal and restore life and all these things, even in that, God, through the cross, is accomplishing His good uh, purposes, His promised victory over death, all of these kinds of things. We see darkness never being the final word in God's program. He keeps His word, and through darkness comes light. And in fact, that, that becomes one of the, the mottos of the Protestant Reformation, that uh, post-tenebrous lux, which is after darkness, light. That This is just how God works, after darkness, light. So the people of Israel, they're in agony as Exodus begins. Where can God be in all this? It all seems so dark, but we know how God works. After darkness, light. This was true of how God worked then, and this is true of how God works even now in our own lives. Things can often seem beyond the realm of hope in seasons of our own lives. We've all had those kinds of seasons. Maybe, in fact, you may be in one right now. We wonder, where can God be? Maybe you're wondering that even this morning. Where is, where is the God who said in Romans that He's going to work all things for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purposes? Where, where's God in the midst of the darkness in my life? And as we have that question in our minds, the witness of Scripture and the testimony of God's people all down through the ages, time and time again, it gives us the answer. Where is God in all this? Well, God is where He always is. He's on His throne, moving history forward according to His good purposes, and He will never leave His people. God's not gone in darkness. In fact, even as we're fresh with the story up to this point, we recognize that actually it's, it's, it's often in those dark circumstances where God's good and relieving purposes shine most brilliantly. Which not only gives us, which not only gives us uh, hope in the midst of the, the circumstances that we face, but this also gives us a way to pray in the midst of the circumstances that we face. Lord, I understand that I'm going through something very thick at the moment, and I understand that it's heavy, and I'm struggling to make it through, but I also understand that you're the God who works good in dark times. You're the God with whom darkness never has the final word, and I need now for you to bring me along in this way so that I can rejoice in your light. This kind of truth that gives us ways to pray as we encounter seasons like this. And at the same time, 
This also helps us make sense of exactly what comes next in the biblical narrative. Because if our first word is agony, we know that first word is never the final word with God. What follows the agony of God's people? Well, after darkness, light. Rescue follows agony. Which is exactly what we see next as the text, as the text continues. So we pick things up as we're going, and, and, and it turns out Moses, you remember, who had tried to be useful before only to find himself running from that potential murder charge, as it turns out, Moses was the man that God's going to use to bring his people out of Egypt. We thought he might be, then it seemed like he wasn't. As it turns out, Moses, Moses is the guy. So, so God calls Moses, um, who's made quite a life for himself out in Midian now at this point. Uh, Moses didn't really have plans to, to have his shepherd business with his new father-in-law be interrupted or anything like that. But God calls Moses in that burning bush experience. And God says to him, I've seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I'm going to deliver them. And I'm going to work through you, Moses, to do it. And Moses, if we remember the story, he has a little bit of trouble with this. Uh, but, but eventually he yields to the directives of God and he goes to Pharaoh and he takes his brother Aaron along for help. And he tells Pharaoh that the Lord has said, let my people go. The Lord says, let my people go. And we know the story. Pharaoh's heart is hard. He doesn't want to let the people go. Um, obviously, the, their, their slave labor, the oppression they're under is the backbone of, of, of much of the economy in Egypt. He doesn't want to let these people go. Not least of all, there are so many of them, they certainly pose a threat at a national level. They need to be kept bound in their, in their, uh, in their situation. Uh, Pharaoh's heart is hard. Uh, God, as we read in the Scriptures, God is behind that as well because uh, God isn't just sovereign over history in general, but He's sovereign even over the hearts of kings. So God is in all of this uh, in order that His purposes and glory can be put on highest display. Uh, but Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go, so God brings those plagues of judgment on the land. Uh, you can persist in disobeying God, but you can't persist in disobeying God and win. So, so plague after plague comes on the land, and Pharaoh largely resists and refuses to pay attention to God's word until God's final display of power. And in a climactic display of power, God brings the plague of death for the firstborn in all Egypt. Um, because of Pharaoh's refusal to obey, the word of God uh, comes, and, and death is going to visit the people of Egypt, which is always ultimately what follows a rejection of God's word, isn't it? Death comes. We learned that all the way back in the garden. You, you, you refuse the life-giving word of God. You rebel against the Creator. Death is going to come. Um, but with God, we also have learned that death never, never comes alone. There's always the promise of life. And the Lord tells Moses that death will not come to the Israelites as they put the blood of the Lamb on their doorposts. And the Israelites obey. And, and the angel of death passes through the land and all the firstborn males die except for the home, in the homes covered by the blood. It's a figure that ultimately points forward to the significance of Jesus' own work. It's remembered in that Passover ceremony where uh, because of the blood covering the doorpost, the angel of death passes over. Death does not have victory in those homes. Jesus ultimately shows himself to be the one whose shed blood offers the only means of rescue from God's uh, judgment of death. It's all pointing forward ultimately to what Christ is going to accomplish. So, so we see that even prefigured here in this, uh, in this final plague that God sends, the plague of death. Uh, but, but this plague does come, and as a result of the plague, uh, Pharaoh does give. And he says, he says the people of Israel can go. And in that event, and in, and in the escape, uh, crossing of the Red Sea, all of those things, the Lord shows Himself to be a God of extraordinary rescuing power. Obviously, on any of these events, we could camp for some time. 
Uh, but we see uh, that ultimately what the Lord is doing is He's heard His people's cries as they're pressed down in bondage, and He's the one who comes to rescue them from their, from their uh, bondage to slavery. He's the rescuing God. And we're mindful of that as the narrative moves forward. Because God reveals Himself throughout the landscape of biblical history, and He does so not just showing Himself to be the God of promise-keeping power, but He also shows Himself to be the God of bondage-breaking power. The constraints that keep His people locked down in the anguish of slavery are constraints that the Lord Himself bursts apart. And again, all of this drives us forward to understand of what God, the work that God does climactically through the cross of Jesus Christ. We think back even all the way to the beginning of time in Genesis 3. Adam was told by God after he sinned in the garden, God said, you were made from dust, to dust you will return. We are as humanity, not bound in slavery, but we're bound by the chains of death because of sin. However, God reveals Himself to be the one who breaks chains. He's the one who rescues us from the things that grip us. He shows that in the Exodus, and He does that completely and perfectly and ultimately and in a way that is completely finished in the work of Jesus Christ, where Christ comes and we're rescued from the bondage of the domain of darkness, and we are now transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Jesus Christ performed the better exodus for us in releasing us from the bondage of sin and death ultimately which is something that we can never lose sight of meditating on in our own Christian life as we go along in our days, even facing the things that we face. We can feel bound in so many ways. We can feel bound in the sins we're committing. We can feel bound in the worries and the stressors that seem so, to weigh so heavily on our shoulders. We can feel bound in, in, in shame. We can feel even bound with grumbling hearts. Have you ever felt bound by a grumbling heart? I felt bound by a grumbling we can feel bound in our lust and so many things. But we remember that God the promise keeper is also the God who breaks bondages. And while the scriptures have much to say on this, it may just be that for our own meditation today, it would be a good exercise to go home and pray like Israel prays at the end of Exodus chapter 2, where they, where they groan because of their slavery and they cry to God for help. Ultimately, that's our posture before the living God lost and bound in sin. We groan because of the bondage to sin that we feel, but we cry to God for help. And what does God do for those who cry for Him to help? Well, He brings rescue. He delivers. So, so, so we see how this plays out from agony to rescue. God brings relief for His people. And so at this point, they're now out of Egypt. And the promise is continuing. Things seem very wonderful. And, and so we have to continue to move through the narrative here. But, but first we had agony, then we had rescue, and now, now we have revelation. Revelation, the God who rescues is the God who reveals Himself. So through Moses, God reveals Himself and, and His way to Israel as they're camped outside of, of Egypt's grasp now. Uh, they come to Mount Sinai, and God speaks to Moses, and through Moses to the people, and God makes another covenant there. He speaks to Moses about regulations around laws and sacrifices. We, we know that the Lord is holy and for His people to have uh, God present with them, which He promises to be, but for God to be present with them, there needs to be the shedding of blood because of sin. Death must be, uh, sin must be dealt with and death is the price. So, so, so we know, uh, of course, that the, the laws of Leviticus, they come to play in order that the people can exercise themselves in faith through that sacrificial system in order that they can have a penitent heart before God because of their sin. 
uh, ultimately, as we know from our studies in Hebrews, those point forward to a better, complete, and final sacrifice. But there uh, on Mount Sinai, the law is given. The way for the people to be with God is revealed. And a covenant is established there between God and His people through Moses. It reveals His character. It reveals what it will look like to have relationship with Him. And right at the center of that covenant is the revelation uh, that Julie read for us in our scripture reading today from Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments. And, and while those commandments can seem so burdensome in a sense, and, and even as we read them, that you go home and you meditate those, the first 17 verses of Exodus chapter 20, you go home and you meditate on those, that they can at, at one level uh, bring a burdened feeling to our heart what we must do is see how God framed that revelation that He gave. How is God revealed in terms of His relationship between Himself and His people? How is all of that framed as Moses speaks for God to the people from the mountain? Well, the whole thing is framed by grace. The whole thing is framed by God's undeserved favor extended to His people. How does it begin? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then the commands begin. He shall have no other gods before me and so on. Right? Here is how the Lord reveals His relationship with His people. I have granted kindness to you. You're free. Now, in that freedom, Obey me and walk in the way that leads to life and honors me in, in, in response to the rescue that I've given. This is not actually unlike God's dealings with Adam, which we've talked about even before human sin ever entered the equation, remember? This is why we have to be able to see these themes develop because this is the God whom we serve. God made the man from the dust before sin ever entered human experience. God made the man from the dust, and what did God give to the man from the dust? We know this now. God gave the man from the dust paradise. He gave him Eden. And in response to that gift, God gives Adam commands to obey, work and keep the garden, Adam. Eat of all the fruit except for that one tree. In response to the gift of paradise, which Adam could never have earned, he brought dust. That was it. Man from dust gets paradise. God calls him to a life of obedience in response to that kindness. The kindness God extends to us always precedes the obedience God requires from us. And that is critical to an understanding of how God always works. The kindness God extends to us always precedes the obedience God requires from us. We don't live in a certain way in order to hopefully somehow grasp out and get pieces of God's favor to pull down toward us. God in His sheer kindness extends His favor to us. And in response to that, we live a life of faithfulness before Him. This is how God has always worked. And this is what God shows most powerfully in the good news about Jesus. Even in the way Jesus in His ministry comported Himself. Do you remember that scene in, in Peter's home in Mark chapter 1? That scene where, um, where Peter's uh, mom is really sick, mother-in-law is really sick. Jesus comes in, and you remember how Mark tells us, that, tells us that things go? Well, he tells us that Jesus went to her. He took her by the hand and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. Did you see the order of, of Christ's grace depicted in that event? Jesus didn't go into the house and require she serve him for a little while before he healed her. He healed, and then she responded in service. 
The Lord didn't give the Ten Commandments to His people in slavery and tell them to keep all the commands for 20 or 30 years. uh, And and if they do that, then He'd rescue them from bondage. The Lord didn't have Adam, uh, the man from the dust, work and keep the land outside of paradise for a while, proving himself worthy before he was allowed to enter. No, this is not how God works. We must always have firmly fixed in our minds that the way God engages with humanity is the way of grace. He extends kindness we don't deserve. And in response to that, He calls for our obedience. He gives, He rescues, He heals, and we serve Him. Not to get His favor, but we serve in response to His favor being extended to us. When we were helplessly dusty and bound and sick, God comes in and first loves us. So so the Apostle Paul, what does he do? He lays out this extraordinary treatise on the realities of Christ and His accomplishments in his letter to the Romans. He speaks all about the extraordinary privileges by grace that are ours through Jesus Christ. And then in Romans 12, what does Paul say? He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, look back at all these mercies of God, in view of all that He's done, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The God who extends grace then calls us into His service. So so God comes to His people in agony. He brings them rescue and He reveals Himself to them. And in response, He calls them to this life of faithfulness. Not, Not obeying so that they can get Him in His kindness. They have Him in His kindness. He's given already for them. But, but, but instead they're obeying because, you know, because He's already extended uh, this great mercy to them. Any kind of gospel, by the way, that puts things in another order, any other kind of thinking on that is a false gospel. This is what makes uh, Christianity Christianity. The fact that we have the God of grace. Any kind of, any kind of situation where we're called to climb the ladder or earn the thing. That's not the way that the God of grace has revealed Himself. That's not the way of salvation. And we know it can't be because we know we can't do it. If a religion is going to be a true religion, it has to be an honest religion. And we could never live up to the holy standards of any living God. Except that God has first shown us mercy and now made a way for us. And so, uh, we move through these things. Agony. Uh, rescue, revelation, and and we keep going in the story. Next is rebellion. I'm going to try to pick up the pace here. This is the problem with the sermon. Any one of these, I mean, we could camp here forever. It's amazing how God works, but we're going to try to, I'll I'll up the clip here. Uh, Rebellion, rebellion, down we go again. So the people of Israel, despite the extraordinary power of God that they witness, uh, not only in the Exodus events themselves with the, with the plagues and then with the crossing of the Red Sea, but even in the daily provision, things like food comes down every day from the sky for you, right? E- even though God provides for them so tangibly, even still, they grumble and disobey God out in the desert. Time and time again, they, they grumble and disobey God. And so bra- God brings a judgment upon that Exodus generation. They weren't going to be permitted to enter the promised land. And, and as sorrowful as that story is, we, we do recognize its importance uh, just on the other side of studying Hebrews, where we saw that the preacher of Hebrews uh, spoke about how it is possible, based on their example, it's, it's possible to experience levels of kindness from God. It's possible to know something of His uniquely gracious provision and at the same time find ourselves grumbling against Him instead of trusting in Him, and that is a dangerous place to be. And so that that generation serves as a warning for us. The Lord will not uh, tolerate rebellion and rejection of His kindness forever. However, uh, Paul, 
as he speaks to, to Timothy, he makes that wonderful statement that sums things up as God continues to be active in his people's lives, where Paul says, though we can be faithless, what does the Lord remain? Irritated, removed, and giving up on the, on the plan that he had? No. Though we, can remain, though we can be faithless, the Lord remains faithful. And the next generation of Israelites, they were, they were brought into the land. Uh, not with Moses leading them, mind you. Moses had sinned significantly himself against God. He wasn't permitted to enter the land. But instead, a man named Joshua uh, leads the people in. Which brings us uh, really to a, to a final section where we move from agony to rescue to revelation to rebellion. Now, ultimately, to fulfillment. Fulfillment because God keeps His promise to Abraham and the people of Abraham's, uh, Abraham's descendants who have now multiplied are in the land that God promised to Abraham. They're back in the land of Canaan. Um, and in that land, under Joshua, uh, God showed Himself to be very powerful. He brought about victory for His people, um, like the victory over the city of Jericho, where God proved that clearly it is His work uh, that's, going to, uh, that's going to bring about the people's, the people's victory in the land. They don't need to fear, thinking they need to bring about victory on their own. The Lord is the one who's going to fight for them. Um, and in the land, the Lord did fight for the people, um, Though they did falter in their trust on occasions, as we can think of those accounts. But with Joshua leading them, that they press forward, seeking to be faithful to the Lord at least most of the time. They even renewed their covenant commitment to the Lord a couple times. Um, and Joshua, he recognizes that while the people have made commitments to God, he does recognize the significant, the significant folly that's present in their hearts because he gives them a final sermon just before he dies. And in that final sermon, he makes that infamous, really it's more of an ominous exhortation to them where he says to them, choose this day whom you will serve. The Israelites, they were in that condition of still needing to, to make a decision in terms of the commitment of their own heart. Will they serve the living and true God, or will they capitulate uh, to the idols of the peoples around them? Who will they serve? Which ultimately we recognize is always the question. That is always the question. As humanity, we are created as worshipers. We, we have always been worshipers. We will always be worship, worshipers. The, the question of our lives is never, do we worship or not? The question of our lives is always, who or what do we worship? There will always be something that has the highest place in our hearts. And so we are reminded from the, from the events there that Joshua is exhorting the people, put your trust in the living God who brings eternal rescue. The things around may draw you away, but you must decide this day that you will serve the living God of the, of, of, of the, of the Exodus, the living God of creation, the one who's been so kind to you. And, uh, and after Joshua's final sermon, sermon, the people, it must have been a good sermon because they really promised to do it. We absolutely will. We're going to be those people who serve God. He, he, he's, been, he's the one for us. And so Joshua's ministry comes to an end. He's been a good leader. But with Joshua, he's not the one we've been waiting for either because Joshua dies. So we've got this trajectory, agony, rescue, revelation, rebellion, fulfillment where God brought the people into the land but now we find the Israelites living life in that land. They've promised to obey God. They were called back to that promise multiple times by Joshua, but they don't keep their promise. In fact, life in the land of Canaan begins to spiral further and further away from trusting in the Lord. And in the midst of the spiral, God, God, God's not uh, uh, done with His people. He raises up judges from time to time. 
uh, we think of those judges. But even those judges, they have a way of spiraling, in, spiraling into even deeper apostasy themselves. Those stories can be so painful uh, as, as, as we read through them. And, and the refrain in the land of Canaan, we discover it's not one of faithfulness, but it's that Israel had no king and what? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The posture of hearts gone far from God. The need in the land of Canaan is for one to come and bring renewal and rescue, not from bondage in Egypt, but from bondage to sinful hearts. And, and it's into this condition that we come up to the narrative of 1 Samuel. J Judges ends with that chilling refrain. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. By the end of Judges we're wondering once again what hope could there possibly be. This is the teacher with the read aloud at a suspenseful part at the end of the day, closing the book and say, we'll start it again tomorrow. What could possibly happen now? Judges are raised up by the Lord, but they come and go, and even the best of them prove unable to bring relief from the strongest grip of sin in, on, on Israel's heart. Hope, by all, the, by all accounts, seems to be lost by the beginning of Judges. But then how does, how does 1 Samuel begin? How does 1 Samuel begin? Well, we meet this man named Elkanah, and he had two wives, which, of course, immediately is troubling to us because that reminds us of the way things were twisted up back in Genesis 4 with Lamech. Remember Lamech, the murderer? He had two, we were told he had two wives. So, so things aren't initially looking all that, all that better here, except as we read on, we read that Elkanah uh, had one wife named Penaniah and the other wife was named Hannah. And we think, you know, well, here we go again. There's no hope now. God, God's been patient for so long. Clearly his designs, though, are still being completely rejected. And yet as we read... We, we discover that uh, while something at first pass uh, might be discouraging to us, we know the storyline so far, and so, and so our hope is renewed when we read that Elkanah had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other was Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but what? Hannah had no children. And while it sounds sorrowful at first pass, after all, Israel's hope will come through a son born, now we're used to the narrative tension. And what happens when it seems like all hope is lost of a son being born who's going to bring the promise and relief is going to be found through this one that's born, we discover here somebody who's barren. Uh, not unlike Isaac's mother, Sarah. Not unlike Jacob's mother, Rebecca. Not unlike Joseph's mother, Rachel. Or the judge Samson's mother who remains unnamed in the, in the narrative. We discover this place where we come still waiting for the sun. And because we know this story so far, we know that rather than that darkness being the final word, what is represented in that statement of otherwise depressed conditions is actually a statement of extraordinary hope. These are the exact kind of circumstances that God works through to bring about the climax of His promised purposes. And so we start in a dark place. But we start in a dark place having been informed by the entirety of the biblical truth up to this point. And so as we've been informed by that biblical truth, we don't start in a dark place hopeless, but we start in that dark place with extraordinary trust and hope because we know how the Lord works. And that is exactly the same way we face the darkness of our own lives as we go through these things. We face these seasons in our own lives just as we face them throughout the biblical narrative knowing that is in the course of things as hard as they may seem that God does His most climactic work. Not unlike situations that, we're, that we read later on as we get into Luke's gospel. Or there we are with this uh, woman who's not married, this la lady who's not married uh, named Mary. And what, what is going to happen there? 
uh, while she's going to become pregnant. And in the context of that pregnancy, the man who is engaged to her decides, I'm not going to be with her anymore. Uh, This can't possibly be a good thing. But in the context of that thing that seems to not be a good thing by all external appearances, as it turns out, that is exactly the circumstances through whom the promised son is going to come. And so we approach this text again, uh, just like we, we continue to do. We approach it with hope, recognizing that what might seem down is actually the exact context in which hope is going to come. Because after darkness, light. Always with God, after darkness, light. And in that we trust. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your word would be an encouragement to us this morning. Uh, Your truth is so vast, it's so deep. Uh, But we recognize centrally the hope that's found in Jesus Christ uh, comes through all its parts and pieces. And we desire to see Christ for who he is. We desire to have our hope set on him, recognizing that he is the climax of your saving work and promises. Help us trust in him. Help others trust in him too. In his name we pray. Amen.